6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Ecclesiastes, chapters 3 and 4. Verse 4, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Boy, that's certainly true. It's part of our walk. There's time that we weep with those that weep and mourn with those that mourn. And uh, also there's a time to dance. You may recall the movie Footloose, which tried to celebrate that very thing with the preacher's kid and, and so forth, the desire to express themselves in a dance against a very restrictive environment. Verse 5, And a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. Israel is a rocky land, and a lot of your farming had to do with clearing your fields before you can plow and plant. Also, if you wanted to hurt an enemy, you'd fill his field with rocks. <laughs> People also gathered stones for building walls and, and houses. Stones are neither good nor bad. That depends on how you use them. And uh, there are places where it's very useful to gather stones. Whenever we're in Israel, we walk down from the Mount of Olives down to the Gethsemane. I always encourage people to take a couple of rocks, put them in your pocket, and then use it to make a little trophy for your house that people ask about, what on earth is that? And you see, that was one of the rocks. That was one of the stones that didn't cry out. And quoting from Luke 19 and the whole 70-week prophecy that's fulfilled on that day and so forth. It's a, you can make these things uh, memorabilia if you like. But anyway, uh, also in this verse, it talks about embracing and refraining from embracing. You know, it's interesting how people from different ethnic backgrounds have different ways of expressing themselves. And, and uh, certainly in the Middle East, as among other places, there's a, there's a tendency to be very demonstrative. There's a lot of hugging and kissing goes on, even among men, whatever. And uh, that's also true in Russia and elsewhere. It's sometimes odd. It seems very strange that they, uh, but they have this deep emotional, uh, the touchy-feely kind of, of uh, embracing and so forth. This could be uh, equivalent, really, to saying hello and saying goodbye also, in effect, the same same expressions there. And, and then in verse 6, a time to get and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away. A better translation would be a time to search and a time to give it up for lost, is a, perhaps a more precise translation. This is the biblical authority for a garage sale. There's a time to buy, there's a time to get rid of stuff, okay? Time to keep and a time to keep out. I sometimes call it the Kenny Roger theology. You know, Kenny Rogers, remember you're the gambler? A time to hold him and a time to fold him. A time to walk, a walk away and a time to run. <laughs> Verse 7, a time to rend and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. And this probably in, in part suggests the strange Jewish practice of tearing their clothes uh, for during a time of grief or repentance. Now, God does expect us to um, sorrow during bereavement but not like the unbelievers. One of the things that we need to do perhaps more effectively is celebrate when a believer has joined our Lord. But again, there's times to take up the needle and thread and start sewing things up. Verse 8, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. Are God's people allowed to hate? The fact that it mentions war and peace here suggests that Solomon really had the nation primarily in mind, but there are some things that even Christians ought to hate. And for your notes, you can, I'll give you a few verses you can jot down and check this out. Second Chronicles 
Psalm 97.10, Proverbs 6.16-19, and Revelation 2, verses 6 and 15. Second Chronicles 19.2, Psalm 97.10, Proverbs 6.16-19, and Revelation 2, verses 6 and 15. Life is sort of like a doctor's prescription. Taking certain things alone, they can kill you, but properly blended, they can bring healing. So there are things that you should have righteous indignation over and so on. But in any case, God is sovereignly in control, and He's in control of everything. And there's a purpose for everything. And this is not fatalism. It doesn't rob us, if you will, of freedom or responsibility. It's simply the wise provision of a loving Father. And He promises to do all these things for our own good in Romans 8.28. You might, um, I often joke about this, but you might make sure you have a tab on Romans 8.28. Hardly a day, day goes by where you don't check to make sure it's still there. And the most important words that, of that verse are the first three. And we know that all things work together for good. For everybody know, for them that love God, to them are, who are the called according to His purpose. Precious, precious verse. Well, now we're going to shift and look from, from this 14 opposites to um, ourselves inside. You might label this uh, eternity as in your heart. Solomon continues here. He's no longer, frankly, looking at life under the sun, which is sort of the theme of the whole letter. What profit hath he that worketh in that wherein he laboreth? I have seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. He hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also he hath set the world in their heart so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. Now in verse 9... He's really repeating the question of the, that opened the, the book, third verse of the first chapter. Is all this labor really worth it? Now, in light of the so-called new evidence, or Solomon's present, he's presently re-examining these statements, he's going to give three answers to that question. Uh, his first answer is that man's life itself is a gift of God. See, in view of the travail that we experience from day to day, life may seem like a strange gift, but it's God's gift just the same. And we may be exercising ourselves trying to uh, answer uh, or explain life's enigmas. And we don't always succeed. But if we believingly accept life as a gift and thank God for it, we will exhibit a better attitude towards the burdens that may be put upon us as, along the way. If we grudgingly accept life as a burden, then we'll miss the gifts that come along with it. And our outlook determines our outcome. I've seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. Profound insight in the way he expresses that. The travails in your life, some minor, some serious, but they're God-given. And he has a purpose in each one of those. Why? To exercise us in it, to grow our faith, to strengthen us. And in that growth, prepare us to comfort Christians that will then have similar burdens put upon them. Maybe a clue to some of the ministries that are ahead of us. And uh, in verse 11, He hath made everything beautiful in His time. Also He has set the world in their heart. Now this, the world here in the Hebrew, it's translated world in the King James, but the Hebrew word is olam. It's a word that embraces the concept of eternity, long duration, antiquity, futurity, forever, everlasting, both forward and back. It's, King James says set the world in their heart. He really has set eternity in your heart. 
And uh, man was created in the image of God, and he was given dominion over the creation. Therefore, man is different than the rest of creation. These parallels that some people draw between man and animals or insects and stuff are naive or incomplete because they don't understand that man is distinctive, and expressly so. And one of the distinctives is that he has eternity in his heart. And yet uh, no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. See, this explains why nobody, including Solomon, can be satisfied with his or her endeavors and achievements uh, or is able to explain the enigmas of life God accomplishes for his own purposes in his time. And it will not be till we enter eternity that we will begin to comprehend God's total plan. Some people often draw the analogy, it's like looking at tapestry from the backside. If you ever looked at a complex tapestry from the backside, it's a hodgepodge of threads, and it isn't until you see the front you really understand the intent of the of the artist. He continues, I know that there is no good in them, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. I know there's no good in them, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. See, this is his third conclusion. Man's life can be enjoyable now. And uh, he's going to emphasize this in all these verses that are 12, 13, and 14. He hinted at this back in chapter 2. I called your attention to it at that time. He was careful to say that even the enjoyment of life is a gift of God. Life is a gift, but so our ability to enjoy it is also a gift of God. And this is a very important theme throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. It's going to be emphasized in each of the four major sections in chapters 3 to chapter 10. Now what Solomon is encouraging here is not pagan hedonism, but rather the practice of enjoying God's gift as the fruit of one's labor, no matter how difficult life may be. Life may appear to us as being transitory or temporary, but whatever God does is forever so that when we live in Him and let Him have His way, life will be meaningful and life will be manageable. So this is really what he's... So instead of complaining what we don't have, we should simply enjoy what we do have and thank God for it. That's why I think Warren Wearsby labels his commentary in Ecclesiastes, the table is be satisfied. Wherever you are, whatever it is, be satisfied. That's a key thread through this entire essay. I know that there's no good in them, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. And for the ability to enjoy it. I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. And God doeth it, that men should fear before him. Boy, that says it all, doesn't it? Now notice the psalm's not saying, you know, be ha- don't worry, be happy. He's promoting faith in God, not faith in faith, or pie in the sky. It's amazing how many people and how often we'll see uh, movies or literature things which seem to extol having faith, never pinning their, never identifying having faith in what? Having faith in emptiness is stupidity. The issue is not having faith, the issue is having faith in the right things and uh, having faith in God. It's amazing how many people seem to make faith itself as if it's an end. No, it's a it's uh, intended to be a transitive verb with an object, in effect. Now, how can life be meaningless and monotonous for you when God has made you part of His eternal plan? There's a basic contradiction there. 
See, you're not some insignificant insect crawling around uh, from one sad annihilation to another. If you've trusted Jesus Christ, you are a child of God being prepared for an eternal home. And John 14, first half a dozen verses emphasize that. Jesus lays it out for you. 2 Corinthians 4, so on. The Puritan pastor Thomas Watson said, Eternity to the godly is a day that has no sunset. Eternity to the wicked is a night that has no sunrise. We can't imagine being without hope. Solomon concludes these three verses by saying, I know that whatsoever God doeth it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken away from it. It's God that doeth it, and the men should fear before Him. This is the proper attitude for us, the fear of the Lord. This isn't the cringing slave before a cruel master. It's the submission of an obedient child to a loving parent. And if we fear God, we need not fear anything else because He's in control. And I think that uh, it's amazing, I think, to see that so operative among other places in our service academies. It's interesting how in the military service, some people, you can argue the military service is the most noble of all professions. Say, what? Yes, Jesus said, there's no greater love than this than he that's willing to lay down his life for his friends. And there are callings, whether it's firemen, whether it's the military service, many callings, in which part of the package is the reality that they, almost on a daily basis, lay down their life for what they're committed to. And I don't know how you take on a profession like that if you're not a godly person, if you don't have a commitment to Jesus Christ. It would be terrifying otherwise. Well, let's move on to the next section. That where He said, look within. Now he's going to say, look ahead. And what he's looking ahead is something that's certain for all of us. We all have an appointment with death. Solomon's already mentioned the certainty of death in chapter 2. And he's going to bring this up again in chapter 4, 5, 6, 8, 9, and 12. Life, death, time, eternity are all fundamental ingredients that make up our brief existence in this world. And they can't be ignored. We may not like the topics, but they cannot be ignored. Verse 15, that which hath seen is now, and that which is to be hath already been. And God requireth that which is past. Now here's another uh, important insight by Solomon. He recognizes there's a thing called accountability. The past isn't gone forever. There's going to be an accountability for it. This is part in chapter 1. He called, In effect, he called it the cycle of life. And the past seems to repeat itself, it would seem. He says there's nothing new in the sun. But see, God can break into history and do what he pleases. And he has many miracles that evidence the cycle is a pattern and not a prison. There are cycles in history, there are cycles all over, but these cycles God can intervene and does. In fact, God is unique. In fact, even our understanding of God is unique in that our God is transcendent from His creation, separate from His creation. You may not realize this, but the Bible is the only holy book that presents a God of that kind. That He's distinct and transcendent from His creation. On the one hand, and yet He also has the interest and capability to enter His creation participate with us. And he did. That's what the person of Jesus Christ is all about. He actually entered his creation to fulfill the requirements of his creation. And he broke, Jesus Christ broke this vicious cycle, if you will, this life-death cycle, because he, he can now make us part of a new creation because he's overcome time and death. 
But he, Solomon adds a new account here. He says that uh, God will call the past into account, is the way the NIV handles it, verse 15. It's a difficult thing to translate. What he literally says is God seeks what hurries along. He really seems to say this, time goes by swiftly and gets away from us, but God to keep track of it and will, at the end of time, call into account everything that we've done with the time we have. That's a terrifying thing, to be accountable for everything we've, we've done. Now, this will tie in with verses 16 and 17, where Psalm's going to dwell on the injustices of his day. You wonder why divine judgment's been delayed. That's a common theme uh, in literature in general and the Bible in particular. But let's go to verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and every work. This raises the classical question, of course, how can God be in control when there's so much evil in our world? With the wicked prospering in their sin and the righteous suffering for their obedience. Those are tough questions. I don't think there's anything that more universally raises our ire than injustice. We have a great deal of difficulty trying to define justice. If you've ever been in a law course or something and you had to try to define what do we mean by justice, it's a difficult task on the one hand. But there's nothing more universal or expressive or focused than injustice. You almost end up defining justice as the absence of injustice. But anyway, Solomon will comfort himself on this whole topic with two assurances. That God has a time for everything, including judgment. We're going to see that in chapter 8. And God is working out His eternal purposes in and through the deeds of men, even the deeds of the wicked. It's hard for us to understand. But strangely enough, even Satan and even the wickedness in this world is ultimately uh, going to be used of God, in effect. Strange, but uh, clear. Okay, verse 18. I said in mine heart concerning the estate of the sons of men that God might manifest them and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. Even one thing befalleth them as one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they all have one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast, for all is vanity. He's not really saying there's no difference uh, uh, over man and beast, but he's saying there, there are some things in common, and there's a difference. He merely pointed out that man and beast have two things in common. They both die, and their bodies return to dust. But man is made in the image of God, and man has a definite advantage over animals as far as life is concerned. But when it comes to the fact of death... Man has no special advantage. He too turns to dust, is, the, is what Solomon is saying. And we know, of course, especially from the New Testament insight, that those who are saved in Christ will one day be resurrected and have glorified bodies suitable for their heavenly home. 1 Corinthians 15 is uh, not only deals with that, but is arguably the most important chapter in the Bible. Because Paul himself says if we don't have chapter 15 and what it contains, we have nothing. So if you have concerns about this or you're starting to misunderstand Solomon here, encourage you to just plunge headlong in 1 Corinthians 15. But what he's saying here is that all go to one place, all are of dust, and all are turned to dust. And he's speaking in strictly naturalistic terms. Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward, and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? Wherefore I perceive that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion. For who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? So that's pretty straightforward. I do have to apologize to pet lovers. My daughter Lisa pointed out, she's a, quite a horse fancier, that there must be horses in heaven 
because Jesus comes back riding to one. And she was wondering about you know, animals in general. I pointed out, there has to be cats in heaven. She says, really, Dad? I says, of course. Where else would they get the strings for the harps? She almost hit me. She almost punched me out. But anyway, Solomon closes this section by reminding us again to accept life from God's hand and enjoy it while we can. Nobody knows what the future holds. And even if we did know, we can't return uh, to life after we've died and start again. Even if you knew it was coming, you can't change it. In other words, that aspect of it. But we do know that God is sovereign control of life, and so we can submit to Him and be at peace. Faith learns to live with inconsistencies and absurdities. Why? Because we live by promises and not explanations. Boy, that a precious truth. We live by promises, not by explanations. We can't explain life, but we must experience life either enduring it or enjoying it. And Solomon calls us, to accept life, enjoy it a day at a time, and be satisfied. Never be satisfied with yourselves or ourselves. We've got to be satisfied with what God gives us to, in this life. And that's the real thrust of Solomon's uh, message here. We may grow in character and godliness if we live by faith, and we'll be able to say with Paul, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. That's the NIV version of Philippians 4.11. Paul says in the King James Version, I... I learned to whatever state I find himself there and to be content. And uh, well, let's, uh, let's go on to chapter four. When Solomon first uh, examined life under the sun, his viewpoint was detached and philosophical. His conclusion that that was was it was meaningless and, and monotonous. But now, as he examines the question again, he's going to go where people really live, and he's going to discover that life is not that simple. Far from being monotonous, it's enigmatic. Those are contradictions. You can't have something that's enigmatic and call it monotonous. So uh, we have no idea what problems are going to occur each day. We understand why Solomon wrote Proverbs 27.1, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Same guy wrote that. So he starts in the courtroom. So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. Wherefore I praise the dead, which were already dead, more than the living, which are yet alive. <laughs> Funny how that last, the verse 2 reminds me of Herman Kahn. He was one of the great thinkers of previous decades. He used to give lectures at the Rand Corporation. He was the expert on thermonuclear war. But I remember one of the chapter titles of his famous volume on thermonuclear war, the definitive text that led to all the rest. Um, he said, Will the living envy the dead? Interesting insight of that thinker. But anyway, um, so I return and consider all the oppressions that were done under the sun. You know, it's interesting, uh, Ambrose Pierce defines politics. It's a strife of interests masquerading as a contest of principles. The conduct of public affairs for private advantage. That's his definition of politics in his famous Devil's Dictionary publication. The nation of Israel had an adequate judicial system based on divine law, but it could be corrupted just like anything else. Moses warned officials to just honestly and fairly in Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 1, and so on. And both the prophet and the psalmist lashed out against social injustice. All through the scripture, a lot of verses, they'll be in your notes. And Solomon had been a wise and just king, but it was impossible for him to guarantee the integrity of every officer in government. So he went into courtroom to watch a trial and saw the innocent people being oppressed by powerful uh, officials. The victims wept, their tears did no good. Nobody stood with them to comfort them. The oppressors had all the power. We've all seen that. 
In fact, it's a very common theme in movies. The movie The Verdict was an example of that. Paul Newman challenging a corrupt court in Boston. The Insider recent movie is also deals with it in another dimension. Our own experience in the courtroom has been similar. It's a, it's a roulette wheel at best. The uh, American orator Daniel Webster once called justice, quote, the ligament which holds civilized beings and nations together, close quote. Well, the body politic in Solomon's day, and I think apparently in ours, seems to have a torn ligament, but let's move on. Wherefore, I praise the dead which were already dead more than the living which are yet alive. Yea, better is he that than both they which hath not yet been, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Again, I consider it all travail, every right work, that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. Now, what he's going to look here is he's going to, he's going to witness three tragedies here. Um, the oppression, exploitation in the halls of justice, the pain and sorrow of, in the lives of innocent people, and the unconcern on the part of those who could have brought comfort. And he was so devastated by what he saw that he thought it was better to be dead than alive. That's just his emotional reaction to the extremes he witnessed. And uh, in fact, he's saying he's better off if never having been born at all than to see the evil works of man. That's, his, that's the emotional cry we're hearing here. We say, gee, he was king. Why didn't he do something about it? Because Solomon's the king, right? And uh, even the king couldn't uh, do a lot to solve this problem. See, once he started to interfere with government and started to interfere with the, uh, the way things were organized, he could only create new problems and reveal more corruption. So the, this isn't to suggest that we should despair of cleaning out political corruption. We should all pray for all those in authority, and we should do what we can to see that just laws are passed and fairly enforced. But it's doubtful that a large administrative body like the one in Israel would ever be free of corruption, that a crusader could... Uh, you know, really do much to improve the uh, situation. Edward Gibbon, who uh, the author of Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, said that the political corruption was the most infallible symptom of constitutional liberty. Interesting observation. You might be right. Because where there's freedom to obey, there's also freedom to disobey. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your prayerful continued support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.